0: Welcome everyone to the Scale Lab, uh, brought to you by TechLeap. Uh, if you're looking for the place where we break down what it takes to scale a tech company from the Netherlands, you've come to the right spot. I'm Joe Wilson, uh, one of your hosts. Think of me like the, uh, a mountain bike, like an American-made mountain bike, you know, the kind that you buy but you never really ride into the mountains anywhere. And my co-host is like that really smooth street cruiser, built purpose for the Netherlands, Constantine. Uh, we have another illustrious guest here in the lab today.
1: Yes, we do. Street cruiser. Uh, exactly. <laughs> I would say that uh, I don't. Yeah, I definitely don't go into the mountains with my bike. Um, but uh, thanks, Joe, for that introduction. Uh, we have with us um, Ali Nicknam, uh, the founder of Bunk, and uh, and and other. Uh, yeah, and businesses. others. That's
0: not like, limited to one company here. Exactly,
1: right? and that's actually where I would just want to kind of dive deep in. Uh, what's where did your drive and your passion come from? You had a really successful business, you're doing well, why, why start an online bank?
2: Well, if you're the mountain bike and you're the street cruiser, <laughs> can I then be the secondhand BMX? Totally useless, but 100% fun. With a lot of tricks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fun and functional. Yeah. Fun and functional. Mm. Um, where did my drive uh, come from? That's, I don't know, I've always been like this. So um, this question has uh, been asked to me before. And it's difficult for me to answer because uh, you are what you are and for me uh, it's the other way around. I don't know any different. I don't need a reason in the morning to get up and uh, do what I do. Um, for me it's the opposite. When I get up in the morning and I'm full of energy and I you know, want to apply that energy, I always wonder what do I apply it in. So the question I ask myself is a different one.
1: But is there an anger? What is? What is? Why do you want to build a bank? Are you
2: You pissed about something? Like, why? Why go? Why go? There's a lot of frustration. Okay, so that's fair. There's a lot of frustration because I think, um, like so many others, I see how beautiful the world can be, and uh, I look around and I see all these opportunities how we can be better, better as humans, better as a world, better as a collective, and when that doesn't happen, uh, that frustrates me and. Uh, that frustration, if it's big enough, uh, gets applied to actually fixing it. So I I think frustration is a part of it. And this can be about small things, like uh, I think like 10 years ago, I got an interview and I wasn't happy with the door handles. And a guy was like, how can you be frustrated about door handles? We just had a new office of TransIP. And uh, the door handles weren't right. And I told him, you know what? Let's pause the interview. I'll show you. And then I showed him the door handles, and he was like, I, Can I swear? Can I say, like, fuck? Yeah. Like, you can say whatever <laughs> you <laughs> want. <Yeah>. you right. <laughs> you can Sorry. say fuck. It's okay. Yeah. Uh, he was like, Fuck, you're right. No, <laughs> I, you know. And um, I think this world can be a significantly better. Sometimes people are cynical or they're tired or they're like, This, you know, it's never going to get better than this. And I feel like Europe is in that space for a couple of years now. Like, it's never going to be as good as this, let's savor the moment and, you know, there's nothing that can be better. And uh, that troubles me deeply because I see a lot of points where we can do a whole lot better. Um, and I think we need to do a whole lot better for the sake of everyone. Um, but anyway, so yeah, it frustrates me and I pick up the gloves and I... Door Door handles. The door handle. So that's a, yeah, you know, it's a fantastic, it, it's
0: a metaphorical OCD type of comment there, right? Like you're like some. The guy must have been thinking you were a little nuts, but then you said just practically touch it. And see. Yeah, I mean, is that the, the way yeah. the story goes?
2: Yeah. So there were. Uh, so we had, I think, I don't know, forty door handles. Twenty-five of them, the swing of the door handle. Twenty-five of them went deep. Fifteen didn't. But
0: look, Ali, that isn't that just more, drives you nuts? I see that as your. I see, and full disclosure, I'm on the supervisory board for Bunk, so like everyone, we know each other. But the I see that as there's an attention to a craft. Yeah. And and you you get you get pissed or emotionally uh, motivated when someone hasn't paid attention to the craft, whatever yeah. the craft may be. Is that a fair way to say? it?
2: That's a fair way to say okay. it.
1: And do you apply this to across your business? But could you give an example how that works? in the way you run your business?
2: Well, um, I can give another example, the coffee machine at bunk. You've experienced it. Um, you haven't, I think Constantine, (laughs) but everybody makes the same mistake. There's a coffee machine to paint the picture. There's a coffee machine. It has different coffees like espresso or cappuccino or whatever. Everybody, you know, they look at the machine, put their cup in the cup holder, press cappuccino, nothing happens. Apparently on the bottom row, there's a start button that you also must press before it actually dispenses. So my point is, to answer your, your question, I see all this stuff and for me, it is not a given that a coffee machine should have a separate button to start. So when I see something like that, I see an opportunity and I think, hey, you know, the intuitive way of building a coffee machine is apparently not by having not by having a start button um, and although this might sound weird that really is at the basis of everything I do I just see things I see the interaction of people with things I see where the world is heading and I think okay you know what let's remove the start button
1: but is this a a drive um, to serve the customer or is this a drive to perfection or is this I mean, you observe it and you think this, can, this is basically a striving, striving for excellence or for improving stuff. When you look deep into yourself, where does this come from?
2: I think um, if you can see how things can be better, why wouldn't you? I just don't get that. Why wouldn't you? I, do, I honestly don't get that. And I know it's not a given for everybody because there's also a great power into accepting things the way they are. That's just not me.
1: But how do you make choices? Because there is so much to improve anywhere. You could go after the system. You you mentioned Europe. You you can look at the world. I mean, there's so much to improve. Where do you choose to apply yourself?
2: Uh, That's a really difficult question. And that's a great question. Because it took me about, I think, a year and a half to decide to start Bunk. Um, Not because it was difficult to see how things could be improved, but because... I wasn't sure if the problem was big enough to uh, deserve my attention without wanting to sound arrogant. Uh, but then a couple of things came together and I saw on the one hand that it, the impact of the financial crisis, because that's the beginning of Bunk, was so profound and so big and it uh, touched so many people's lives that I thought, okay, well, that's the thing. Secondly, I noticed that the problem was and is very abstract. so. You know, when a roof is leaking, it is quite tangible and it's quite visible. And you know, there's no. But if um, if a, a banking system isn't functioning, that is an abstract concept because money is abstract, banking is abstract, finance is abstract. So, and things that are out of our view typically don't get fixed as much as things that are within our view. So that was the second thing, and then. The third thing was, and this was gravely concerning to me, um, I'm an engineer and I have an engineering mindset. When I see something is broken, I like to fix it. Um, I don't care why it got broken. I don't care who broke it. I don't care, you know, who is to blame and by how much. I just want it fixed because, you know, the blame doesn't really help us any forward. But at the time, and I guess you guys recall. All newspapers, all politicians, all everybody was concerned about was who was to blame, why did we get here, by how much was anyone to blame, should somebody go to prison, and maybe they should, but that didn't fix the problem. So when I saw those three things, I figured, okay, you know, nobody's going to be crazy enough to do this stuff, so I'll I'll just do it. Wasn't planning mm. on doing it. For and what
1: was the the problem you needed fixing?
2: Uh, the lack of diversity in the financial sector, and I don't mean—I know diversity has since then become a thing, yeah—but I mean it in a broader perspective. Diversity of choice, and, diversity yep. of choice, diversity of business models, yep. diversity of product offerings, diversity of risk models, um, diversity of people, obviously, diversity of thought.
1: And and um, but you by bringing your. Addition to it, it, that doesn't immediately bring diversity. It just it's just one different way of doing things. So it's just. Well,
2: it, what we did. Um, I, I think, just
1: I think you want to do more than just bring because just bringing your becoming a player in the game is one extra supplier. That's not diversity. I think you you try to do more.
2: Yeah. 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 So um, what we did is we got the first banking permit in thirty five years. Right. That's a big thing. Nobody thought it was possible, Um, and by doing so we opened the door that was closed for a very long time and you've seen other neobanks pop up. Um, And I don't want to take all the credit and stuff because obviously the regulators also changed their perspective and their point of view, so that's not the point, but we were the first to breach that barrier and help them into a different mindset. We also did so by introducing a completely different business model. Our business model is very different to traditional banks. Traditional banks are like second-hand car salesmen. They get money as cheaply as possible, and they put it out there as as expensive as possible, and therefore the more margin they make, the more profit they make. So the intrinsic motivation of that business model, like with second-hand car salesmen, is to buy the car as cheap as possible. As we all know, when you have a car with a roof uh, roof. roof thing, Uh, what's what's Zonadag. What yeah, 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 Sun, yeah, yeah, Sunroof. Sun, sunroof, yeah. Uh, the car salesman, yeah, but sunroofs always leak. So I'm going to give you 500 less. And then on the other hand, when you buy a car with a sunroof, it's like, yeah, but this car has a sunroof. Mm-hmm. So it's 500 more. It is not because inherently the secondhand car salesman is a bad person. It is a logical consequence of the business model. He can make more margin by pointing these things out. The same goes for banks, right? When you... Uh, want to apply for a loan, as we all know, as any entrepreneur knows, by the way, um, the collateral you have to put up often far exceeds the loan you're actually applying for. And at the same time, because you're an entrepreneur and maybe you don't have a track record or your collateral is this or the market is doing that, your interest rate is high. Whereas at the same time, as we all know, the interest rate we get on our bank accounts is zero and sometimes even negative. And this is a logical consequence of this business model. Conversely, Bunk is a service-oriented organization. So we charge a couple of euros a month, which means that our interests are aligned with our users. So if we create a product people love to use, they will be willing to pay that couple of euros. If we don't, they won't. So our business reality, our commercial existence, is completely based on the fact that we make our users happy. Mm. That is completely different.
0: So can we tease out of that uh, um, kind of a habit of, of yours? Because I think this actually goes back to transAP and then forward. Um, and then a lesson learned, which is this kind of customer obsession concept. Like you, you if there's one thing you, you do is you zero tightly into like, who is it that's going to use this and how yeah. do we serve them? Like
2: with the coffee machine.
0: It's a coffee machine, yes. Yeah. That, that coffee machine should not have had the extra button, basically. No. If they'd known the users, they wouldn't know everybody's touching that exactly.
2: exactly freaking screen. One field test yeah. and they would have fixed it.
0: So this is consistent. Like, as a learning to other entrepreneurs, you're saying, guys, gals, everyone.
2: Look how your product is used. Don't, when people do things wrong, don't tell them they're doing it wrong, which is something I see many people do, also internally within Bunk. Learn. That that is apparently the intuitive way a human brain uses a product, change the product.
1: You said it took you one and a half year to find out uh, if the problem was big enough, and to just just maybe take us through the your thinking about um, when you start a business, uh, when you decided okay this is this is really going to take off, when you started to figure out how you were going to make that difference and how you were going to take it to where the company is is now. Or maybe until the moment where you accepted external investors in the company.
2: Okay. I think, you know, I started my first business when I was 16. And um, whatever you do and spend time and energy on, you'll get better at it, right? So by the time I got to decide whether I wanted to start another business and what business, I I think it's fair to say that I was quite good at it um, so for me starting a business just for the sake of money and just making a working business wasn't enough challenge anymore been there done that more than once um, so I wanted to do something that brought a positive impact to the world it was a long journey I I, I had a lot of different routes I could take um, also considered not starting a business but having more focus on my personal life things didn't work out that way so you know that was one of the possibilities too Um, because I think one of the things to take into consideration is like with any top performers whether it's athletes or musicians or entrepreneurs you can only do it if it has your full attention and energy so I was aware of that back then, I think I was 28. And um, so that was the thing, the other thing was, okay, I considered only doing like NGO stuff, like uh, clean water in Africa, I literally considered that. But those things kind of fell away because I figured, how cool would it be? So Bunk is not, I never, like with the fundraise, which I guess we'll talk about in a bit, it is very rare for me to make a move for just one reason I usually make a move that hits multiple goals at the same time so with Bunk we kinda set the first steps in changing an entire industry that would then help that industry to become more customer serving which is important for us all at the same time um, For me, it was also an opportunity to try to get the Netherlands back on the world map again, in that sense. Because I felt that this country has so much great people, so much talent, great infrastructure. And I just, at the time, couldn't understand why the Netherlands, despite having a lot of great companies from the past, like Shell, KLM, Axonobel, Nobel, DSM, didn't really have big consumer uh, uh, successes recently anymore. I know everybody talks about booking, but booking only became successful when Priceline, which is an American company, took over. And more recently we have obviously uh, Atien, um, which is a great success, but it's B2B, it's not a B2C proposition. So in my book the last big B2C success was TomTom which is now 20 something years ago. So, you know, I couldn't understand at the time why, uh, why such a great country wasn't more prominent on the world stage. So that was a thing for me too. Um, and lastly, it was also an interesting uh, thing for me to experiment, whether you could create a business model that inherently makes profit by doing good for the world. Effectively merging capitalism and commercial reality, which we know works, with public services, NGO, whatever you want to call Purpose. it. Purpose. Purpose. Which we know we need.
1: And, and if you look now where Bunk is, um, do you feel that people understand that? That, no. that proposition? No. Is that, Does that trouble you? No. You don't, I mean, um, because something about changing the world is also moving people and moving perceptions and, and, and that, is that, that's, a, you're fine that, your know, Bunk is known, What what is Bunk known as for you in, in your
2: perspective? I think Bunk is known uh, internationally for being the first and greatly innovative, um, globally speaking, not just pan-European globally speaking, I know Bunk is very well regarded and researched for our ability to understand customers and translate that into a UX. That is going to be the next thing. Sometimes we run ahead of the curve a little bit too much and then we slow down and then wait for the world to catch up. Bunk is known for uh, being technically very adept and for generally, you know, I mean, I know some banks have teams of people who basically dissect our app to understand what the next thing is going to be and to figure out whether they should follow or not. That is a huge impact for a small company. Mm. And I'm very proud of that, by the way. Um, so I think, you know, in, in the business sector of, of finance, that's how Bunk is known. I think for normal people since recently, Bunk is known as a fintech unicorn and before that probably as the bank guys that, you know, they were quite different, people couldn't quite explain why, but they could feel it when they used the product.
1: Well, and you, is the the place where you get a bank account, whereas in many other places it was difficult.
2: Um, yeah, I think that's, Increasingly on, that's on the superficial yeah, yeah. layer, that's on yeah. the top layer. Uh, so that's the reason why you would consider bank. But once you actually start mm. using it, and we see this, with, they become emotionally detached to it, it becomes more than just hmm. a bank account. And that's very fascinating to see, because who gives a shit about their bank account? Bunk users. In a sense, you,
0: maybe this is a bit of a softball question, but you would like people not to limit bunk to being a bank.
2: Fair? Yes, very fair. I don't think we're a bank. Well, we have a banking permit. But we're changing what a bank can be. So we're this new thing for which no word exists yet.
0: Financial services is too limiting. It's too or it has too so much connotation on something else.
2: It's right? too abstract. Yeah.
0: Um, but it is... More accurate. If we if we track to the yeah. entrepreneur journey on bunk, let's just stay on bunk yeah. scope for the sake. Yeah. You know, there's a time that comes when you're feeling like, all right, this is gonna work. You know, you had the idea, you got it out in the market, you did your testing, you know, your field testing, whatever the case may be, but then somewhere it starts to organically move maybe even faster than you expected. There's yeah. that sort of, and I, the term is used product market fit, but I'm sort of curious, like when was that moment? And then did you guys proactively play into it or were you concerned? Or w- when was that moment for Bunk? And then how did you react in, in terms of action?
2: We, we are uh, uh, now at the moment that we have a product market fit in the Netherlands for some time now. Um, and I think it has to do with the ease of use of signing up. Uh, but it is, and this is something that uh, uh, that I'm still working on, but it is mostly focused on a bank and not all the other cool things we do. So I don't know how to solve that yet. We're, we're still working on that. Uh, but I think we saw that and we tried to replicate it in, in the other countries around us, like Germany and France. And um, actually right before the corona crisis hit, we start, started seeing an uptick in Germany and in France for different reasons. The Germans liked the control and the privacy aspect of bank, the French liked the absence of bureaucracy and the great UX. So we saw that. Um, And then, you know, Corona hit was a, um, was an uncertain time and so we cut all the marketing spend and you know, as a bank you need to have a minimum level of brand awareness before people consider you and um so things kind of slowed down um but i think it, it's about december 2019 january 2020 when we know you tell this.
0: that story a bit like you know again with the full disclosure you tell the story like uh the world went flat but it didn't you you still you're still growing you were just growing slower yeah right so and it's we, like and the story
2: wasn't we stopped growing the story no. was we were growing slower than the year before no we weren't growing slower than the year before okay Uh, we were growing slower than we wanted because we cut away 85% of our marketing spend. During this time? And we were growing, and the mix of the growth was also different because it was, we were uh, investing in Germany and France um, for that growth engine to start, and then we kind of killed it off, and so the growth is, I think, for 90% in the Netherlands still, or 85%.
1: Well, as we are... um but we are touching. coming. Don't fear, yeah, yeah.
2: my German and yeah. French friends. Don't <laughs> worry. We,
1: well, as we we're touching on, on Germany and France, so uh, what was your what is your strategy to go international, and why do you choose those two countries? And uh, um, yeah, can you take us through that experience? Yeah,
2: sure. So uh, when I started with France IP, I was still very young, not a lot of gray hairs, um, and um, at the time, you know, I started in the Netherlands. The code base was largely Dutch. Documentation was largely Dutch. And then we figured, hey, you know, after a couple of years, because I really didn't have any money, so I had to make do at the time. Maybe also interesting to know for people is there was a time where you didn't get money for a startup. You actually needed to fund it yourself. And the business model actually needed to make a profit because there was nobody else giving you any money. So I'm talking about those Ancient history.
1: <laughs> Making
2: so, money. What, yeah. The, nobody makes the money the anymore. Profit? Well, except for my... What crazy talk is this? Um, uh, so we focused on becoming profitable because, you know, first business, it was very scary. I was uh, responsible for many people's lives and, you know, their mortgages and stuff like that. So being financially healthy was very important and we focused in the Netherlands because we had a product market fit and things were growing anyway and why go to to another country when you're growing in the Netherlands already. That was a mistake. So by the time uh, we wanted to go abroad and I think this was in 2006, only three years after the start of Mm -hmm. TransIP, we just failed. We failed, we utterly failed and we failed because and this is very interesting uh, because the core, once something is in your DNA, it's almost if impossible to change it. So the what core was, the was Dutch. DNA? That, like, we, you the Dutchness. Were, you didn't start with international mindset. You started with a Dutch mindset. Exactly. <laughs> so you know, we would get three or four English-speaking people. Everybody would speak Dutch, and they felt left out. We would hire five Spanish people to offset the Spanish market, but the Dutch, all the Dutch. Um, um, all the Dutch efforts always got prioritized over Spain. Why? Because there were 70 people concerned about the Netherlands and five about Spain. We didn't have the financial money to hire 70 people in Spain, plus it didn't make any business sense, who hire 70 people to five people. So, we kind of got in this backed into this corner where we, we had this really great product. Like, really great uh, trans IP still today, even though the innovation kind of slowed down after I left but still today is regarded as the best in class uh, in the web hosting and domain name world. Um, We had this great product but it was only in the Netherlands. So then after that failed I, I figured okay let's try to do what Booking did. So we have a great product let's find a distribution partner. Failed there too. That was my I think my first real experience with the corporate world where things move slow and decisions are made based on downside risk rather than upside potential. Um, at the same time we continued to grow so we started doing an M&A ourselves and you know, we grew big like that because as you guys probably know TransIP now is the world third largest web hosting and domain name provider so it's called Team Blue.
0: So all the uh, international expansion came through M and A partnerships. Yeah. Okay, so you basically acquired your way into new markets as, yeah. as a country strategy
2: because we were
0: financially healthy. Yeah. yeah. So then again, therein lies a lesson for those who, who you know if they're struggling with their international capabilities, there may be another path. Yeah, there's many ways to skin a cat, as
2: yeah. the Americans say. I guess.
1: Now we moved to bank. There was you chose another way. Yeah. So is that based on your lessons at TransIP? Uh, yeah.
2: It's even oh in my book. So I wrote a yeah. book somewhere in between as well. It's in Dutch, unfortunately. Not a mistake. Won't make that mistake again. But it was... Uh, it's called... There are
1: translators,
0: you know. Like, I have been <laughs> asked if <laughs> I read it and I yeah. said, I can't. It's Thank in Dutch. And yeah. He said,
2: on the yeah. said, he said <laughs> go, no, go learn Dutch. Dutch. Entrepreneurs <laughs> never catch a break. And I think it's the number one biggest lesson in that book. Like, you know, think globally from day one.
1: Mm-hmm. But so you could I, have you could have thought, okay, we found another strategy. We can actually acquire our way into new uh, markets. Where you were not satisfied with no. the result, okay? So, no. no. So it worked as a Bis- secondary strategy. Business-wise,
2: was, yeah. we're very successful, but um, the integration isn't as good as it could, and therefore the user experience isn't as good as it should, and yep. therefore I'm not happy. Yeah.
1: Okay. So back to so, bunk.
2: back to bank back to bank. With that lesson, expensive lesson, learned um, from day one, everything at Bank has been in English. We've hired uh, international people from day one. Um, the office is in a location that is more um, exciting for international people. So TransIP started in, in Gouda because I just lived there. Um, and then moved to Leiden, which is a lovely city but it is very Dutch, as you well know. Um and uh um you know, for Bank we only had the the choice Amsterdam, Rotterdam, or not Netherlands Amsterdam it was and Amsterdam it became okay,
1: and then you built uh you built the company um over a period of eight nine years, yeah, and then
2: long years
1: and so when did you decide to go? To Germany and now to France and, and, and uh, did you was that postponed? I mean you, you talk a bit about uh about OC your the,
2: the complexity of bank is that it's a regulated business. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> with an unregulated business with thanks to the power of the internet you can do whatever you want. Yeah. <clears throat> but with Bunk we actually had to do the paperwork before we were allowed to do business in Germany. Mm-hmm. So that took quite some time. And we kind of finished the paperwork and then we went at it the bunk way so we opened the doors but we didn't advertise yet because we wanted to see uh, how the Germans uh, used the product and what we could improve, how many start buttons of the coffee machine we had to remove for it to become a success. And then we kind of got there late 2019, early 2020 but then... um, we decided for the safe mm. route of not spending a lot of money.
1: Looking back, would you have gone earlier? Or? Um,
2: no. No. Is that, I think is there we a moment, is that the, right,
1: the a right moment to go international or not? We,
2: we went as quick as we could. You so we started could. filing the paperwork the day we got the permit. Mm. Um, and we went international. I do think that if I had been more open to investors, uh we would have been more international than we are today at the same time if i had so this is so it's not all good because if we have had if we had had jesus christ had uh, we done that had we done that (laughs) thank you (laughs) then some of the pivots we made which were mind-boggling at first and looking back are completely logical wouldn't have been accepted by by investors so we would have you know had to face different dilemmas mm. and different issues.
1: But it seems like, um, and we get to the investors um, as well. But now, with taking on board investors, you also made a big pivot. So, no, or, it, no, or was it really already really. part of your strategy, yeah. and you just needed investors?
0: It's a thing.
2: Okay. It's a tiny thing.
0: Alright, so we've, we've walked through um, a little bit of the history and bring us up to, to to sort of relatively current state. There's a lot of decisions between in those eight or nine years that we haven't touched on yet, but I think there's always the question, um, we've talked about capital, you've talked about saying there was a reason not to take it, you know, there's a double-edged sword in a way. It's a double-edged, yes. Right? So, and then, right? And there's a lot of ways to take that. Yeah. But now, just to bring us all up to, there is a capital infusion expected or in landing. Yeah. So maybe you can share a little bit about what that is and then we can Ask you a couple of questions yeah. on that
2: one. So, I think there's a right time for everything. And obviously, I'm maybe a bit seasoned or old or old fashioned, whatever naming you want to call it. But I think at the beginning, it's more healthy if people focus on the product market fit and concern themselves mostly about uh, users and about a healthy business model and then take on capital. Um, so, that's what we did at Bunk. Um, but once you find the product market fit, then you need to have the bravour to, you know, go out there and, and make your mark. And I think that's what we're doing right now. So there's that's the moment has
0: arrived. The moment has arrived. And maybe can you just describe for the people listening, like, what it is and why you decided this was the right thing to do?
2: Um, for us, it was... So, as we just talked about DNA and how difficult it is to change DNA... Um, a couple of things came together. So, I think a part of our DNA is now set in stone, which is good. The user-centricity, the love for the product and the attention to detail. Um, and no investor can change that. So, if you're listening, forget it, guys. It's not going to change. At the same time, we found the product-market fit. So, we're not, we're not fueling a business model that is effectively failing, which yeah, I growth. sometimes suspect some companies to do, we're spending this money to fuel our growth, the business model is healthy. When those two came together, all we needed was to know for certain that we could use that money to grow somewhere, and that somewhere is France and Germany. So when those things came together, that flagged for us uh, the option or the consideration to start getting a Uh, investor board. Now, going back to what I said earlier, I never make one move for one reason. Um, Because in our search for an investor, we also searched for an investor who could bring more to the table than just money. Because there's plenty of money to go around now. And this particular uh, investor also had a company in its portfolio uh, that was of interest to us. This company is called Capital Flow They share the same value in the sense that they are very close to their customers. And by combining Capital Flow, who is an SME lender, with the deposits we have at Bunk, both companies become significantly more profitable. So everybody wins. If
0: I flip this back to the entrepreneur lesson, you've said it. In case anybody missed it, don't make a move for a single reason. Make sure there's multiple goals that get hit.
2: I, I I wouldn't say that. But that's not the way I do things. I mean, different things work for different people. This works for me.
1: Yeah, but you could have, you would have acquired a company even if you wouldn't have had this investor. Well, because acquiring yes, a company made, made it sense. would have yeah. been
2: a bit of a stretch, given yeah. you know yeah, of the numbers yeah. we're talking about.
1: Yeah, but you could have found another way of financing it, and then the the portfolio, then the the VC that invested in them before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah because. Uh, and and your i mean if if you if you look at choosing your investors there's a lot to, uh, to do about that i mean and and, and some of your compatriots uh, <laughs> that we have had here or i don't know how yeah. do you call them <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah the other companies what do you even call it, um, here had uh, their very different views on on different aspects of this but all agree on it, that it's it's super important to find um, those investors that will, will run that extra mile with you and that choosing them is really important and very often there's a lot of criticism of the, the domestic market. Uh, you must have, been, must have been going around and, and checking out many investors in the Netherlands and abroad. Uh, what made you choose beyond that they had this, this company in your uh, in their portfolio?
2: Um, so that's a lot of questions in one.
1: So basically just how do you come to choose your investor if it's not just for this portfolio company?
2: Okay, so all investors always tell you the same story because they know what, what entrepreneurs want to hear. So for me, um, as we say in uh, Rotterdam, geen woorden maar danen. So I tend to look at what investors do rather than what they say. So that's one of the things.
1: And what, can you make that concrete?
2: Yeah, like uh, if you look at their portfolio companies, obviously everybody says just call some references, but the references they give you are only the companies that they know are going to be happy with them. So that's irrelevant. Mm. So what I tend to do is I, I look at the fund's uh, mandate, is where in the funding cycle is the, is the fund, how big is the fund, how much Which part of the fund is already invested? What are the engagement rules for the fund? How long have the people of the fund been there? What's their track record previously? So that's the stuff that I look at. And the talk, I mean, as I tell the many people who have tried to court bunk, like, you know, let's skip the wishy-washy, how how you're different than all the rest, because you will really understand entrepreneurs and do what I need. So I'm going to assume that. Tell me how you're different. It's an so enviable position
0: in a way for a lot of these companies versus a lot of these companies where you're you're funding this on your own. So when you go to choose an investor, you're you're a bit more selective. Or I maybe you're saying selective. this is the process everyone should follow.
2: I think this is the process that everyone should follow. because And also, I think as an investor, despite the fact that people might give you more of a hard time, I would always opt for a person who knows what they're doing and are giving you a hard time. Um, in the long run that's just better but you know that's just me anyways so that was the thing the second thing was uh, uh, so I look at the fund and the principles and the statistics and the information on that then I look at you know the people because at the end of the day everything is done by people and uh, what their values are and what their considerations are so uh, I look at values because as with any marriage um, you need to share the same core values; um, otherwise, things will go bad after the honeymoon period. How do, you, is over.
1: how do you test them? Is it spending a lot of time with them? No, or? again,
2: you see what the, you see what they do. Yeah. So, in the case of Poland Capital, uh, they had already invested in quite a number of sustainable and green businesses, and they also turned some of the green, uh, uh, some of the businesses they had into being more green. So, that's a value we shared. Mm. Uh, In the case of Capital Flow, uh, it was clear. I mean, just speaking to the CEO, it's completely clear. The guy, he knows his customers by name. He knows what they're doing. So he knows Mm. he has that intimate relationship with them.
0: So I want to m- move off of capital and then to something that's a bit more operational, and it's really up to you, Ali, if you're if you're willing to share. Because yeah. again, you know, I know some things. So there is a uh, there's there's a definition of customer obsession, customer obsession in the world, which is like go focus on your customer, know what they want, build products, move on. But it would be fair to say that at bunk you may have taken that to new heights with the how you center in on a particular demographic, how you structure the company, how you look at that. And then again, it's up to you in terms of how much you're willing to share about that. But I think there's an an interesting story inside of being obsessed about a customer, zeroing in that customer, and then moving the company in direction to serve that customer.
2: Yes, that's right. So uh, are you talking about Ava's journey now? Okay. I'm letting you talk about Ava's journey. Uh, Yeah, I'd love to, but I think it is so abstract and big. Maybe we can save it for next time.
0: So let's then bring it into a short statement of if you truly believe in customer, centering on a customer, there are more choices than just doing the market research.
2: Yes. There's a lot of tactical things that are possible to set that up. So I think uh, what Joe is pointing towards is something we call Ava's journey and the organization changes we made. Uh, to make sure that not just the business model, but also the organization is inherently aligned with our customers' wants and needs, or our users, because we like to call them users. There's difference in in our perception, Uh, but that is such an abstract and big thing that um, um, I think we need more time to dive into it, although it is a good question. (laughs) Thanks. I feel better. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't
1: feel that one. Yes, Uh, but 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 then maybe go on to the organization. So if your organization is as obsessed like you with the customer, um, how how important is the organization itself to you as an entrepreneur? Your 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 people, and how what kind of culture are you aspiring to build or have you built in Bunk?
2: I think uh, Bunk's culture is very unique, especially to the Netherlands. It is a performance culture. It is a culture that. Um, I was just speaking to a very old HR person, old as in experienced, I guess. Um, and he's very Dutch and he says, wow, this sounds really interesting because in many Dutch companies, the average is pursued, you know, making sure that everybody's on board, everybody's happy. And the common denominator is that, and the flip side of that is that every employee is expected to be good in a broad sense of uh, skills. I think Bunk is different. We don't care if you're imperfect. If you're really good at what you do, you can just do that. Mm. And in that sense, I think uh, Bunk doesn't focus on, you know, consensus and keeping the average. Bunk focuses on success. In that sense, it's more aligned with the US way of working.
1: how does that motivate people? I mean, and, and how do you ensure that all those, those, um, and that whole group kind of works together as one even if you say you maybe you know you might be really good at one this is yoan thing, right he says you know if you're good in attack don't try to make him a defender as well but they have to work that, as okay. a team so how do you yeah i don't
2: it's a shame i never yeah, got yeah. to learn that. but but, um, no, no,
1: but how do you how do you make them work as a team and how do they also share in the company well it's uh, very
2: simple to make profits. them work as a team because once you know that the guy who is standing on the goal in the goal is the best keeper this allows you as the attacker or as the midfield to confidently uh, place yourself near the opponent's goal you can only do that if you have the best goalie behind you and once you have the best goalie behind you there is no doubt that you need to work together you cannot win anything by yourself Different question is what do you do when you have two goalies, but I mean, I think that's healthy competition and whoever is the best may win. But um, I think once you get the best people in who know what they're good at and also know what they're not good at, they will organize themselves into a functional team. So you believe in self-organization? Yeah, I think that is... So ownership is a big thing at BUNK. Uh, where you are held accountable for a certain set of results. I mean, like the soccer field, it is divided up in smaller bits, and you're uh, responsible for your own little patch of land. And however you do that, by cooperating with others or etc., doesn't matter as long as you hit your targets.
1: Mm. And um, we also, we, we uh, technically, we do a lot around. Uh, Remuneration, you know, options, and that. Do you do you believe in 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 giving everybody a share in the company, or how do you motivate people and connect them with the with the collective output of yeah. uh, of Bunk?
2: I believe in uh, having a fair remuneration, and I believe uh, for Bunk specifically. Mm. But if we zoom out from Bunk and look at the sector as a whole, like all of the companies, I think many people have a me-too kind of mentality when it comes to HR. They don't really think about it. They don't think about the organization. kind of happens to them. Whereas I feel that... um, I mean, it's the people and the culture that make your company. So, I think what we do at Bunk is we know what we're trying to achieve. We know what change we want to inspire to the world. We know what uh, user demographic is most susceptible to that change and therefore our champion that's Ava we Ava's journey and then we know what person uh, will be the best servant to Ava, the best person to serve Ava the best person to please her, the best person to excite her, the best person to help her when she needs it um, in case anybody didn't
0: pick up on that Ava is the ideal customer profile. She is, yeah. the, she is the customer profile. So when yeah. you talk about where serving, we're targeting, that's just a clarification yeah. for the listeners.
2: Yeah, exactly, where we're targeting for. And then uh, we have uh, Adam, Adam and Eve,
0: hey. as the ideal
2: <laughs> as the ideal uh, person serving Ava. And uh, we're actually in the middle of a process of redoing our entire stru- strategy around Adam because the last one we did is about three years old and the world has changed and we have changed um and i think it is important to work your way back from the type of person you want and make sure that whatever it is you give those people is fair for what they're expected to so it goes beyond just money or options or a 4-day work week or a 6-day work week or you know working from home or not working from home it needs to be a coherent package that resonates and aligns with, in our case, Adam's needs.
1: But would you go as, as far as you're going with your with Eve in, in terms of uh, targeting and personalizing that, uh, that, that reward package or the, 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 the total package for your Adam?
2: Yes. Yes. If you have a gasoline car, diesel won't do you much good.
1: Yeah, but it's a bit more than diesel and, and gasoline. Be
0: careful. Yeah. No, but you no, know, the, the embedded a... in the metaphors we continue yeah. down the line. <laughs> no, I mean, For and, anyone who's lost the plot, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Eva is the customer <laughs> and Adam is the employee. <laughs> Adam is the
1: employee yeah, and 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 the question is like are you putting as much in, um, energy into Adam as in Eva? Eve and and I think you are. And it's but it's interesting to know uh, about how how in the in your vision of your company uh that's serving your your employee um, is, um, is a, a critical uh, competitive asset or a, cr- a critical part of your strategy. So maybe if you can elaborate a bit on it and st- get out of the abstract and say, what is it? Yeah. You know,
2: it's obviously uh, a conscious thing now.
1: It's yeah. not something you're yeah. just spinning around on.
2: So I, I, get, I get what you're saying, but I think the most important thing is for CEOs to figure out where am I heading, who's going to get me there, how can I make the people who get me there happy? That's what I'm saying. And I know know it sounds simple and I know it sounds abstract, but I really do think knowing quite a number of CEOs, both from startups as well as scale-ups, as well as corporates, Mm -hmm. not many people actually have a people agenda. They just don't. Um, I think the most advanced strategy on people I've ever read was whether, you know, you want to be on the 80 percentile or the 75 or the 50 or the 25. That's it. Okay. Um, we go
0: across these different topics each time we have a podcast. We look at product market fit. We talk about talent, capital, international. One of the things that we didn't ask you so far was like, were there any major pivots along the way that you guys had to take? Like big monster decisions where you had to like turn the whole thing left or right?
2: Or was it been on well, the straight path? We know they're
1: there because otherwise yeah, you, you, mentioned you, a little you wouldn't have pivots. taken an investor, right?
2: um you mentioned it before yeah maybe so um the first major question was should we apply for a banking permit Ah, so all the way back to that Uh, interesting and i was always a strong proponent the people actually doing the work not so much they didn't want to get lumped in with
0: the banks they didn't want to be yeah. Or why uh, do we
2: why don't we start we can start earlier, we can, you know, we faster. can get a bank, banking permit later. But for me it was very important because of the DNA thing. I thought mm. if we don't do the banking permit from the start, it's going to be much harder later and we will run into issues. Now
1: So that's that's a key decision. Yeah. That's not a pivot.
2: Or well, were you on another track? That's that's a decision where we didn't yeah. pivot. Yeah. Then, uh, before launch, we pivoted a number of times on the way we wanted to charge our users. So first we wanted to do business only, then we did both, then we did a fixed fee, then we did a... uh, And we worked out all these models, right? Uh, And then, at the last minute, we decided to go on a pay-per-use program. About a year and a little bit in, we pivoted back to fixed fee was a big change. And why? Because we saw the 28%, I believe or 31, something like that. Percent of the questions were about, Hey, I don't understand my invoice. And we were like, we're about the start button, the coffee machine. Back to the coffee machine. We were like, okay, we figured paper use would be more fair because these are recurring themes, right? Fairness uh easiness, sustainability. A decision is not the same thing as a it is not so for the no, hand
1: no, 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 no. No, and I guess I guess part of the pivoting is also um did you did you make decisions that you had to come back to? That you that did you did well, you are there this one was obvious. Yeah, yeah is there yeah. are there other things uh well because of my you, background
2: but, we noticed at a certain point in time that uh we were getting a lot of tech savvy users your uh, background
1: being with um, with transip and being yeah, a tech yeah. guy so, and, so you were in the community and you had network okay
2: yeah and the people knew, knew me for that and i think my natural instinct is also to build a great tech product right so people were really happy with that with the api and everything but we noticed that this kind of pulled us in a direction that diverted from the goal we had from Ava. Um and then I, th- I don't think it was a conscious decision, um, but we said, Hey, you know, we're doing too many things. We're a small company. The easiest way to go to shit is by not focusing. And so we said, we adapted all our processes and all our forms and said, okay. You know, if we want to do X, how does it align with Ava's wants and needs? And just by doing so, we started focusing more and more on Ava, and kind of alienated a part of the tech community. Maybe we go for some like rapid-fire questions. Yeah,
0: across the different businesses that you had, can you think of one or two of the hardest decisions that you've had to make?
2: The very first time I had to fire a person. The very first time I had to hire a person. That must have all been uh, in a long time ago. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so firing still remains the most difficult me, thing. Yeah. yeah,
2: for me. Especially if a person is very much aligned, like culturally, but they're not performing, then it really breaks my heart. It still does. Across the different guests
0: that we've had, they, you know, a lot of the entrepreneurs will comment on different roles in the company that just they wish they'd hired earlier. Yeah. Like, oh, God, I wish I'd gotten my, this or that, the other. Any of those that come out for you, are like there any particular roles in the company like, God, I should have hired that sooner?
2: Obviously. If you, if you know where to find them, I have, I have a list for you right now. Yeah, <laughs> other
0: than but but really, higher, yeah.
2: maybe like maybe <laughs> the critical <laughs> ones. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, um, you have to take into consideration that Bunk is now my fourth company or so, yeah. and in between I've been involved left and right with a number of companies, so I understand this question, but I think I either answer these questions in the context of TransIP, IP, which was my first company 18 years ago, or I answer them truthfully for Bunk, which is... For most of these questions, going to be, well, not really, you know.
0: Because you, you did it before. That. Yeah. I did so, it, you know, And today, yeah.
2: if I'd asked you 10 years ago, you might have had a different answer, yeah. basically. How do you,
0: just as operational, how do you structure your work week or your routine? I mean, are there,
2: are there like, ways you prioritize? How do you make, yeah. let's just go so, with the, op, the obvious. Like, how do you structure your week? I like the operational bit. So, Bunk is a very creative company. So, one of the things that we set out right from the start was to, keep the operational bits as small as possible. So, by a very simple mechanism, so we have weeklies, which means that any decision that needs to pass me uh, needs to be submitted every Monday before 1700, and then everybody gets a 15 or 20 minute slot on Tuesday uh, to go through it. Now this might seem very simple, and it is, uh, but this teaches people to look ahead and to plan ahead. And this is quite interesting because, so for example, the other day we had a legal person who was still new to bunk, not familiar with this process. By the way, we really need to fix our onboarding, but that's a separate thing. Not familiar with this process. And he needed my signature on something. And I told him, oh, you know, see you on Monday. And then it was, yeah, but I need it now, and etc. I said, yeah, I'm very sorry. See you on Monday. Now, obviously, in a first reaction, this is not very helpful to that person. But then he came back on Monday he said, you know what? I thought about it over the weekend. You're completely right. This makes so much sense. All the other companies I've ever worked at, people are running around with papers all week. You need to sign left and right. It's one big, chaotic mess. Here, everything is structured. So... I think at Bunk, we do everything in rhythms. Um, So, we set the OKR every quarter, we calculate back to weekly milestones, we calculate the weekly milestones back to daily to-do tasks. Um, We report on them, we look ahead, if we don't hit a task, how are we going to mitigate? Um, We bring out weekly report on our progress towards the OKR, then we mitigate. And all of this is made so that actually the operational burden becomes smaller. As you explain it, it sounds heavy, but then you say no, actually,
0: because it's a, a known rhythm, somehow it's lighter. Yeah, it's lighter. It's like brushing your teeth every day. If you added up all the minutes, it might seem like a lot, but actually... That was you know, only Monday
1: and I say, that's just Monday Tuesday. <laughs> so, What happens if the we the rest of the week?
2: Yeah, so that's a, uh, a great question. So, um, due to historical reasons, Wednesday has always been my trans-IP day. I kind of abused my Wednesday for Bunk for many years, but now it's back. So Wednesday is the day where I do things like this. Thursday, I usually have a lot of meetings with other people, with new people or with potential uh, uh, partnerships or stuff. Um, Friday, I use the review code, but we switched over to continuous deploy. So that's uh, throughout the week now. So Friday, these days, I actually... So things are getting into order, right? So bunk is getting into a different structure. I don't need to be everywhere all the time anymore. So Fridays, I often pick one project that I think deserves my interest. um, And I chew on it on Friday and over the weekend. And then Monday, the cycle starts again. If you could pick anyone, living or dead, to get advice from, who would it be? (laughs) Frederick Nietzsche. Uh, Thomas Alva Edison, Steve Jobs. Why Nietzsche? Interesting guy.
1: Interesting guy. Interesting, Interesting writing. guy.
2: And Leonardo okay. da Vinci.
1: So, uh, what and what question would you ask uh, Nietzsche?
2: What question would I ask? Uh, what's the sense of it all?
1: Okay, you think he'd have the answer?
2: No but you it be an interesting answer
0: yeah. <laughs> all right look like everyone who, who attends our podcast we sort of leave open the last uh, question and, and sort of say look there's a lot of people out there now we like to think of it as a lot of people listening
1: About thousands a mil- hundred thousands isn't it millions gotta be yeah. continents
0: yeah. worth of humans that are listening to this exactly yeah um that uh they're like well what's the words of advice so you're sitting on where you're sitting you've still got a lot ahead of you a lot of decisions with a bunk a lot more to go words of advice to anybody who's getting it going or just getting to the scale point now that you would think, you know, maybe you wish somebody would have given you when you hit that spot the first time.
2: Most people you'll talk to don't know what they're talking about. Believe in yourself and just do it. Worst that can happen is you'll fill, you'll learn, you'll pick yourself up again and you'll do it right the next time. Ali, it's always a pleasure. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Ali.
1: Thank you for listening to The Scale Lab, a podcast brought to you by TechLeaf. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please share.